God has for you. So let me pray for all of us this morning. Would you join me, please, as we do that in praying? God, what a joy and a privilege to come before you and recognize that you are uh, a God of speech. Uh, you speak. You don't, you don't hide yourself from us. The, the Bible makes that so clear. You, you don't seek to, to be difficult to find. You don't send us on some big rabbit trail and scavenger hunt that has got very, very little hope of ever finding you. God, you reveal yourself to us. You speak, you explain, you come down to our level because we could never hope to make it up to yours on our own. And so, God, I thank you for speaking, not only in the Bible, but in the person of Jesus to become a man, to live as a human being in the world we live in, to bring the truths of God to us. God, we acknowledge you as a speaker, somebody who desires to share with us. And so I pray that you would help us this morning to be hearers, those who are actually aware of the fact that you're there and that you speak. And God, that may mean different things for each one of us. And so in this next um, several minutes we have together, the remainder of this worship service, I, I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at. Maybe if we have questions or doubts about whether you even exist. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. I, if, if we have doubts about your character, maybe we believe you're there, but we don't know if we can trust you. God, I pray that you would show us your heart. And God, if we know you're there, but we are simply not obediently following you, I pray that you would show us that you are more true and more beautiful than anything else we could put our hearts and hopes in. You are more valuable than anything that is at work or on our dating apps or in our refrigerators or with our friends. God, I pray that you would train our hearts to respond to you. God, we know you're speaking. We pray that you'd help us listen. I want to pray for all of the young men and women who will be at water ski camp this week. It was fun to pray for the leaders and those who are serving to make the camp happen last Sunday. Today, Father God, we want to pray especially for every young man and woman who is going on this ski camp. We pray, God, that it would be a transformative experience. We pray that it would be fun. Uh, we pray that bruises would be short-lived and laughed over. God, we also pray that deep, significant conversations would happen between students and you, between students and one another. I pray that you would give the, the hearts of each one of these young people, especially those who are connected deeply together already in relationship, give them the expansive heart of God that would reach out to and draw other students in. As so many of them will not know each other, I pray that new relationships would form this week. And most of all, Father God, that relationships with you would either start or deepen. I pray that there would be enough time to just have rest and peace and quiet in a beautiful location. And I pray, God, that your voice would speak strongly and that young women and men would hear your voice and respond because you've made each student going on this camp. You love them and you've died to redeem them. I pray, God, that you'd make that real to them in a way that would transform their lives and take all of their anxiety and replace it with the joy of knowing that they are safe in their maker's hand because of Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself this morning over the course of this next week. As you speak, let us listen, we pray. In Christ's name we ask this, amen. Well, good morning, church. 
I know so many of you, that's awesome. I don't know that I know all of you. So uh, I am Matt. I'm one of the elders here at Harvest Community Church. I also serve as our lead pastor. It is exciting to have you guys here with us. If you're a regular part of our church family, we assemble because being together is so important. Thank you for coming and connecting, looking out to other faces that are new and inviting them in as well. If you are newer to our church, so glad that you're here. Maybe this is your first time ever. We are thrilled to have you here because we care about you. God cares about you, and he's got things to tell us. Uh, Curious, any of you ever done either like a zip line or a ropes course or something like that? Lots of hands. Okay, several of you. So you know what I'm talking about, right? You get in, um, uh, up in the trees, like for a ropes course, you're, you're usually up in the trees or you're way up high somewhere, which is always funny because when you look at people from the ground, you're like, they're not up that high. And then you get up on one of these platforms and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in orbit. You know, it always looks way higher when you're up there because you see all this space out there and you're freaking out. So uh, my family and I got a chance to do a ropes course this past week. It was a lot of fun. Uh, my daughter Elizabeth came in from Nebraska. Some of you saw her last Sunday. She was here visiting for a little while. So the four of us went away for a couple days, something we don't get to do a whole lot anymore. And one of the things we did was we got all strapped up in this ropes course. So we're up like, you know, 40, 45 feet off the ground, which just looks like forever high. And, you know, you're on this little wooden platform that's, you know, maybe a couple feet wide. And there's the edge and it's straight down. And between you and the next platform, which is like, I don't know, another 30, 40 feet away, there's maybe a cable, you know, that big around, something like that. Or, you know, there'll be like a series of basically like a trapeze, you know, a small log that's got two ropes on it and you grab it and it's wobbling and, and you got to just sort of grab the next one and wobble and, and there's nothing but space. Like it freaks you out. Who in their right mind would do this? I'm not actually sure. But anyway, if you do one of those things, you know what happens. Like, first of all, you get there, and they don't immediately, you don't just go jump out on, on the course, right? They, they truss you up in this harness. They get all the safety equipment there. And then you kind of go through what they call ground school, which is way more intense than it sounds, right? But they show you, like, how to use all the safety equipment. You're always clipped into these safety cables with at least two clips, like, it's so that it's impossible for you to actually fall and hurt yourself, and how to use the clips, and how to m- maneuver yourself through the course safely, They tell you where all of their staff are because if you do get stuck, which is unlikely, but but it's possible you could get stuck in a place that you can't get yourself out of. There's help available, how to access that help. Like they, they make sure you know everything you need to know. Do you have any questions? They run you through the test stuff. All right, you're ready to go. And then they set you out on the course. And so we're out there and we're, you know, 40 feet up in the air. And you're standing before this series of like, you know, they're all these different obstacles, like the one I remember I just described. It's like 10 little trapeze logs in a row and nothing but space underneath it. And you're swinging around, you just got to grab and get from one to the other. And it's interesting because it's always that first step that's the freaky one, right? I mean, at some point you just get to the edge of the platform and you're like, okay, I got to get from here to there. I'm strapped in. I'm hooked in, I know I'm safe, I know what to do, and I know where to get help if I get stuck. So I've got everything I need. Now it's just go time. (laughs) Are you going to take the step out into outer space and launch off into this thing and manage to get yourself across it? Deciding to go sometimes is still challenging even when you know you've been given everything you need. You've got to decide to commit And you've got to decide to do this thing. In a lot of ways, 
I found myself reflecting back on that experience as we get ready to wrap up or end our study in the book of Acts this morning. As a church, we've been going through the New Testament book of Acts for a few months now. We're going to look at the last two chapters today, chapters 27 and 28. It will end the book. It's really ending the whole series. And as we'll see in a moment, uh, the series ends, this, the, the majority of these chapters, it kind of ends on a story. Uh, it's a real-life adventure story of nautical travel and dangerous storms that ultimately culminate in shipwreck. Like, it's the stuff of movies, right? So there's this really cool adventure story, but if you're anything like me, you end up going like, so why is this in the Bible? Like, why is this long travel narrative and this story of shipwreck in the Bible? Why did God put this here? And the reason, and we'll see this in a moment, the reason he put it there is because this shipwreck story is a great way to recast the entire message of the book of Acts. Everything that's been said from the beginning kind of finds its summary as this story that ends the book unfolds. And that message is clear. The message throughout this series has been that God's purpose for us is to make disciples, followers of Jesus, by proclaiming his word, his message, in the power of his Holy Spirit, that's who changes us, through local churches just like this one. Those three things are key. God is making disciples by proclaiming his word and the power of his spirit through local churches. We've seen that over and over. The book of Acts has unpacked those. It's approached them in different details. It showed us how they look in real life, but it all comes back to that essential message. And so it's kind of like you're finally there. You you now have all the information you need. You have all the resources at your disposal. You have your church. You have God's word in the Bible. We have God's Holy Spirit. We're all strapped in. We know where to go. We know we can make it from point A to point B. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but we know we can do it. And now the question is, do you take the step off the ledge? It's go time. (laughs) You're strapped in. You know what to do. It can be freaky, but do you do it? What are you living for? Will you go all in for this mission? That's what I want us to see today. I think that's what God wants us to see in the Bible. God's call to make disciples is clear. Now we must choose whether to answer that call. Keep that in mind as we read through this kind of shipwreck, ocean-going narrative and see how it summarizes these principles. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab them, turn them to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 27. This is a story, kind of just kind of resetting the context here. We've been following uh, the arrest of the Apostle Paul. He's uh, uh, been accused of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem of uh, preaching um, false doctrine, which is basically the gospel of Jesus. They've wanted him killed. They couldn't get him killed. He got himself arrested by the Romans as a way to protect himself. There's been a lot going on, right? So he's in Roman custody. His fellow Jewish leaders want to kill him. He appeals his case to Caesar because God told him, you got to go to Rome and talk about me there in Rome. And he realized appealing to Caesar is my ticket to Rome. And that's where the story picks up. He's now in custody of a Roman centurion, a captain of the guard, and there's some other soldiers whose job is to take this prisoner and get him safely to Rome and make sure nothing happens to him on the way. 
So they book passage on a few commercial merchant vessels and they're moving through the Mediterranean Sea on their way to Rome. Now the journey that we're going to see is basically this. If you're familiar with uh, the Mediterranean Ocean, they start way down there in the bottom, kind of right-hand corner uh, in Caesarea, not far from Jerusalem. They kind of go up the coast. They go all the way down the, the coast of southern, what is now today southern Turkey. And in just the first few verses, they make it like halfway to uh, Rome. They get all the way to the island of Crete, which is sort of blown up in the bottom left there, because this is where the story then really starts. This is where it gets interesting. Pretty uneventful trip up to this point. But once they get to Crete, they run into a problem, and we pick that up in verses 9 to 20, Acts chapter 27. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our own lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor, where they were, was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor on the island of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they'd obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, and then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, the anchors, and thus they were driven along. Thus we were violently storm-tossed. The next day, they began to jettison the cargo in effort to lighten the ship and hope it doesn't run aground on a reef. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Let's pause there. The Mediterranean Sea was was notorious for powerful storms between the months of November and about January or February that uh, ships of that day and age, they simply couldn't handle them. And so this was kind of the no sailing season. You you, You don't do a lot of sailing on the Mediterranean during those three or four months out of the year. And that no sailing season was just starting about the time they got halfway to Rome. So we saw in verse 10, the apostle Paul tries to talk them out of it. He's like, we should just stop here, guys. Let's just wait out the winter and then move on uh, in the season when it's more safe. But the centurion, this Roman guard who's in charge, right? And it's his job to make sure that these prisoners get to Rome safely. His own head is on the line if they don't make it to Rome safely. So he wants to get there and he wants to get there as soon as he can. And so he talks to the experts. He talks to the, the ship's owner, the pilot, the, guy, the sailors, the guys that really know what they're talking about. He's like, do you think we can make it a little bit further? Because, see, the harbor they were in wasn't a great one. And so they're like, well, you know, just like 40 miles further up the coast, like just a one-day sailing trip. It's not that far. If we could just get there, there's a much better place to spend the winter. So Paul's like, I don't think we should do it. And the expert sailors are like, let's go for it. Let's do it. Now, remember, they don't have GPS. 
They don't have weather satellites. You know, they, they have no idea if storms are coming. All they can do is just kind of look around and read the sky and take their best guess. And they're like, it looks pretty calm. It's a short trip. Let's go. So that's the first decision point. This Roman soldier's got a decision to make. He says, I'm not going to listen to Paul. I'm going to trust the experts. And so he puts all of their lives in the hands of the expert sailors. And then it gets interesting. In a scene reminiscent of Gilligan's Island, (laughs) yes, I'm dating myself. Um, I'm curious how many of you just laughed or like, under the age of 40. Does anybody even know what that show is anymore? (laughs) All right, yes, thank you. Young people who know what Gilligan's Island is, right? It's the three-hour tour, right? And boom, the weather goes crazy and the ship gets blown. They didn't have far to go. Like they were just trying to go 40 miles up the coast. Like we can do this in a day and boom, out of nowhere, a few hours into the trip, this huge storm picks up that goes on and on. It lasts for days. They can't fight it in this little first century boat. They eventually just have to give up and let, them blow, let it blow them way away from the, the, the shore out into the middle of the sea. Over the next two weeks, they are blown some 500 miles off course. With the clouds and the fact that they can't see all the stars, and again, they don't have nav- uh, GPS navigation or whatever, like they don't know where they are. It's cold, it's miserable. Every day they wake up thinking we're going to die, and the storm just keeps going and going. All they can do is hang on for dear life. Now, over the, the rest of this chapter, three important things happen that remind us what the book of Acts is all about. The first... Remember, God's making disciples by spreading his word in the power of his spirit through local churches. That's what this story is actually all about. Here's what I mean. Let's keep reading. The first thing is that God shows up and he gives them a a message, his word, his promise. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. In other words, you're going to make it to Rome alive. But not just you, he says, behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul says to them, take heart, men, for I have faith, that is, I trust, that God, in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. God shows up in the middle of the chaos, and he says, I got a promise. Paul, you are going to live, and everybody who stays with you on the boat is going to live. Now, interestingly, the boat is going to die The boat is going to wreck, but if you stay on the boat, you will live. Well, that's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? (laughs) He's like, don't jump off the boat. You're going to have to stay on the boat to live, but the boat itself is going to wreck. God, how is the boat going to wreck and we're going to live? Like, those are two things that don't go together. God's like, will you trust me? That's the choice they have to make. You see, immediately you begin to see that this isn't just a travel narrative it's not just a travel journey this is this is a salvation story not just a travel story 
everything that's happening in this story is like a little word picture of the entire message of the Bible. We are doomed by our sin to eternal death and condemnation. But God shows up in the midst of the chaos and he says, I will save you. I will save you if you stay in the boat. And what's happening within this story, as, as, as Luke, the guy who's writing this, is putting it together, is he's, he's sort of depicting it as a salvation narrative. There's this boat. The boat is going to die, but if you stay in the boat, you will live. Does that sound familiar? There's this salvation, this person you have to trust. If you stay in that person, you will live. He's going to die, but you will live. Do you see the parallel? How can a Savior who dies save us? That doesn't make any sense. God says, that's my plan. Will you trust me? God's word is how salvation always starts, a promise from God. Then you've got to choose whether or not to believe in it, whether to accept that word, trust it, or reject it. That's what comes next, verse 27. Uh, this is all very deliberate. You see, Luke is trying to help us see the decisions that were made along the journey. The next bit of dialogue is between Paul uh, and this Roman centurion. Verse 27, When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and they found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. So it's getting shallower and shallower. They're afraid the ship is about to wreck. And fearing that we might run up on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed the day would come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Okay, whoa, let's pause here for a minute. This is interesting, isn't it? Remember, we've got this group of sailors. They're the experts. They're the one running the boat. You've got these Roman soldiers that have booked passage on the ship, but he's the Roman soldier. He's ultimately like, in charge of making sure Paul gets to Rome you know, safely. And then here's Paul, the prisoner, and he's in the custody of these Roman soldiers. They have been now at sea for so long that they're all tired, they're exhausted, and they have no, they've never seen, even the sailors, like, we've never seen a storm like this. We're going to die. We've got a slim chance of survival. And as they realize the water's getting shallower and shallower, they're like, we're headed for rocks. This is bad. <laughs> the ship is going to wreck, and if the ship wrecks, we're going to die. God had already said that wouldn't happen. But in their experience, if the ship wrecks and you're on it, you die. So the sailors decide, I don't care what Paul thought he heard from his God. We know what shipwrecks are. <laughs> and so we're going to trust our understanding. We're getting off this ship before it wrecks. But they also know there's not enough room for everybody. You know, because the Coast Guard back then hadn't made those kinds of ships have enough lifeboats for everybody on board. That hadn't quite happened yet <laughs> in history. And so they're like, okay, well, they're throwing out these sea anchors out from behind that kind of drag in the water and try to slow the ship down. And the rest of the passengers and the soldiers are like, okay, that's what you guys are doing. And then some of these uh, sailors sneak to the front of the ship and they're like, let's lower down the ship's little boat and use it like a lifeboat. Let's get in it. Let's get out of here. And we'll just pretend that these non-sailors who don't know what we're doing, we'll pretend that we're throwing off more sea anchors. But we're really lowering the boat and trying to sneak off the ship and leave you guys to your own fate. Paul sees what's going on. He tells the Roman 
centurion, the guy in charge, he's like, if they leave, it's not what God said. Like, we're going to die. We have to trust in God's word or we're going to die. The Roman soldier now has a major decision to make, doesn't he? He's not the expert, he's not the sailor, but he is in charge, and he trusted these guys and their expertise in sailing before, and look where it got him. We're all about to die. Now he's got the choice. Am I going to trust what this guy Paul is telling me that his God told him, or am I going to continue to trust in human expertise? This is a moment of decision for this Roman centurion. That's the point of the story. He's at a crisis of decision. He's got to decide what to do. Well, he had listened to the sailors' expertise before. That's what got them into this mess. So clearly he is done relying on human expertise and wisdom. And he chooses now to put all of their lives in the hands, not of the sailors, as he did before, but now he chooses to put all of their lives in the hands of Paul's God, and he has his men go cut the rope so the boat goes away and nobody gets off. That's a bold move. The centurion says, I'm taking over. Nobody's leaving this boat. <laughs> we are all going to trust that what God said through Paul is right. So there's God's word, <laughs> the promise, and then there's the choice. Do you bank everything on it or not? It's not enough to just know that God made a promise. I have to choose to trust him. Lastly, there's the, the, episode, the, uh, the recounting of how God came through on that promise. Go down to verse 39. Now when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship aground. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea, uh, and at the same time, they loosened the ropes that tied the rudders, hoisted the foresail to the wind, and made for the beach. They never got there. Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck fast and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. This is it. <laughs> Shipwreck. We're not on shore yet. The boat's breaking apart. We're going to die. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So having refused a minute ago to let the sailors take matters into their own hands and save their own skins, he now refuses to let his own soldiers take matters into their hands and save their own skins. Because see, they're afraid now that the ship is wrecking, if these prisoners live, some of them are going to run. And if you're a Roman soldier in that day and age and your job is to make sure these prisoners get to Rome safely and the prisoners escape, you get killed. That's your punishment. So they're going like, these guys are going to run away. We should just kill them now. <laughs> and we'll say they died in the shipwreck and then we'll be okay. They're looking to save their own skins. The Roman centurion is like, guys, this God promised Paul we're all going to live if we just trust it. Let's play it out. He told us the ship was going to wreck. In a pretty remarkable act of faith, he just says, everybody go for land. Let's just see what happens. They jump overboard, and this, this heathen Roman, this guy who knows nothing about God, he has no background in the Bible, he's not an expert, but he goes all in on God's promise. And what happens is exactly what God said would happen. The ship is destroyed, 
and miraculously every single person on board makes it to land and survives. You see, this is so much more than a travel story. It's a salvation story. It's a salvation story. In order to experience new life and freedom from our sin, from our guilt, from our condemnation, God gives us his word, his promise, his message. You've got to come to me and accept Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sins. You've got to bank on that. You've got to rely on that. He died, but if you trust in him, you will live for all eternity. That's God's word. We have to choose whether or not to believe and see God come through and save. Have you banked on Jesus' death as the payment for your personal sins? That's what God wants us to see here. That's what God wants us to see here. Stay in the boat of Christ to stick with the imagery of this story. Stay in the boat. He dies. You live. God is making disciples by giving us his word, his promise through his Savior Son. As this narrative ends and they get to Rome, it also hits on the other couple of key themes in Acts. There's God's word. There's also God's spirit. He makes a couple of pretty poignant cameos here in chapter 28. They're shipwrecked on this island. And on the one hand, it's pretty amazing. It's a miracle itself that nobody died in that shipwreck. By all rights, lots of those people should have died. None of them did. But as if that wasn't miraculous enough, we run into a couple of more scenes. Chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. So this is now right below Sicily. They're almost to the Italian mainland. The native people there showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because, we had begun, uh, because it had begun to rain and we were cold. When Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. A deadly poisonous snake bit him. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, Oh, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped uh, from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They're like, we know what that snake is, and that guy's dead. (laughs) He's already dead. It's only a matter of time. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and decided that he was a god. (laughs) He's like, no, that's not it either. But God is supernaturally protecting me. Paul's life is saved again, supernaturally, by a miracle. And then there's one more miracle, verse 7. Now those in the neighborhood of that place... uh, no, sorry, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, a man named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It just happened that his father lay sick with a fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came, and many of them were cured. So they honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put us on board with whatever... We need it. They spend the winter on Malta, and meanwhile, like the Holy Spirit is doing miracles and saving more people. He saves the people from the shipwreck. He saves Paul from the snake. He's saving all sorts of people from sickness and illness. What's the point? It's the same point we've seen throughout the book of Acts. You will receive power when my Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the other utter ends of the earth. God is making disciples as his word is proclaimed and his spirit changes people's lives. The power for transformation comes from God, not from us. Does a fear of personal inadequacy keep you from following Jesus and making disciples? I don't know how to do it. I'm afraid I might mess up as if it's all up to us. God's spirit is the one who transforms a human heart and leads people to repentance and faith in Christ. Do we need to rely on God's spirit? The story shows how God's making disciples through his word, his promise of salvation, through the power of his spirit, lastly, through his people in local churches through his people in local churches. As we uh, jump a little bit ahead in the narrative, they finally get to the Italian mainland. They're heading up toward Rome. And there, Paul and the soldiers stay with a group of Christians for a week. And then some other Christians who were living in Rome came south to meet them Uh, about a 40-mile journey. You look in verse uh, 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse, that's on the island of Sicily. We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, which is now on the Italian mainland. And after... um, uh, One day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's what they call the town further up uh, the mainland. And there we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. There's a church there. There's Christians there. There's people sharing hospitality with Paul, with his Christian friends, with the Roman soldiers who are seeing Christian community and hospitality and love in action. And... So at last we came to Rome. The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. Those were two way stations on the road. They're about 30 and 40 miles south of Rome. So here's these Christians in Rome. They hear that Paul is finally coming and they go out to meet him 40 miles on foot and maybe animals if you were wealthy enough to own one. That is not a small journey. They went a couple of days to meet him, to greet him, and to escort them back into Rome. Paul thanked God when he saw them and took courage. Why include those little details about all the people that helped Paul along the way, the Christians who shared hospitality? Because this is pointing backward to a major theme throughout this book of Acts, the centrality of the local church in God's plan. God is making disciples by proclaiming his word and the power of his spirit through local churches. Churches just like this one. Gatherings just like this one right now. You see, a church isn't just something that we, we watch. A church is something that, that Christians are. It's, it's a group of, of Christians who commit to one another to say, we're going to live out our pursuit of Jesus together. We're going to get to know one another. We're going to do life together. We're going to encourage each other and challenge each other and pick each other up when we fall. We're going to do this following Jesus thing together. So we are an us, and that makes us a local church. 
When a person becomes saved, they put their faith in Jesus, they are saved into God's family and they become part of what we sometimes refer to as the universal church. Anybody ever heard that phrase? The universal church. It's not in the Bible. That's just a, a, a word, a phrase that we use to describe every person throughout history who has become part of the family of God. And, and sometimes the Bible calls that my, Jesus calls it like my church. That's the church of God. That's the universal church. Every Christian throughout all time. But that's a theological reality at this point. It's not really an experienced reality. Because after all, you can't personally know all the Christians on the other side of town, much less the, the millions of Christians who live in Africa and Southeast Asia and the Middle East and South America. Not to mention the ones who have already died. You ever try to get to know a dead person? It's kind of hard to do life with them. <laughs> it's obvious, right? We're not the experienced reality yet. The experienced reality, God's plan right now, is that his universal church gets expressed and experienced in local churches. Christians who live together in the same place at the same time saying, we're going to do this disciple-making, Jesus-following thing together. So we gather in local churches, groups of Christians who make a commitment to one another to obey Jesus' commands and follow out and live out the family that he's made us to be. We've seen God's word, we've seen God's spirit, but we've also seen the importance and the centrality of God's local church. Do you need to commit to a local church, to find one, to engage, to pursue people, to make a commitment? As this whole story of them getting, they finally make it to Rome. Yay, they're in Rome now, but was it just a travel story? Going from Caesarea to Rome? So much more than that. It's a salvation story. It's a power of God's Holy Spirit story. It's an importance of God's local people story. Ultimately, it's a story of God making disciples of all people everywhere. Because Paul is in Rome. The symbolic center, the center of the Roman Empire, the symbolic ends of the earth in that first century day. The purpose of all of this, Rome is ready. In, in the language of you know, first century, Rome is ready to hear the gospel. The world, people who don't know who Jesus is, they desperately need and are ready to hear the story. There's a very interesting contrast in this story as it wraps up in chapter 28 between that Roman centurion that we've been following around throughout this whole story and the Jewish religious leaders who live in Rome and they meet Paul when he finally gets there. Let's once again remind ourselves about this Roman centurion and then we'll look at the, the Jewish religious leaders. One of the interesting kind of sub-themes is how this, this Roman centurion, how his opinion changed throughout this story. Initially, he's kind of neutral toward Paul. He, this guy gets you know, remanded to his custody and his job is to take him to Rome. He's like, all right, I don't really know anything about him. Maybe I've heard some things about him. I don't know this guy. I don't have anything against him. The point is he's a prisoner and it's my job to take him to Rome. So initially, he's very kind to the Apostle Paul. He treats him well. Hey, if you're not going to try to escape, then, you know, let's just, then I'll be nice to you, right? I mean, he's, he's not really against him. He's not really for him. He's just neutral toward him. And when faced with that choice between Paul's uh, nautical advice, back in chapter 27, verse 10, and that of the experts, he chose to put all of their lives in the hands of the experts. He doesn't believe that this guy has anything to tell him. 
That's the Roman centurion at the beginning of the story. What happened to him at the end of the story? Did you notice his opinion change? That choice to put their hands in the lives of the human experts nearly cost them all their lives. So when he orders the boat cut free at the end, he's putting all of their lives now in the hands of God's promise as spoken through Paul. So what's the picture? The picture is that of a man who is not really opposed to Paul's message at first. He just doesn't know anything about it and doesn't see much to it. But he becomes convinced that Paul is speaking truth from God. The lesson is that Rome is ready to hear the gospel as sort of encapsulated by this Roman soldier. But what about the Jewish religious people who already know the truths of God's word? Well, it's interesting. When the Apostle Paul gets there in chapter 28, after three days, this is in verse 17, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews and when they had gathered he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or against the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. He's telling them like his whole story. He's giving his defense. Even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Now, here's what they say to him, verse 21. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are with regard to this sect that we know everywhere it is spoken against. So, this is interesting. The Jewish religious leaders also in Rome are neutral toward Paul. That's a first in the book of Acts. All the Jewish religious leaders have been against him, so he gets to Rome. It took them months to get there, so he's assuming somebody came, somebody sent a letter. They've probably poisoned the Jewish leaders against me, right? They too are, but they're like, no, we've received no letter. We don't know anything bad about you. He's pleasantly surprised. Wow. Just like the Roman soldier, you guys are neutral toward me. You're not biased against me. Great, then let me open the Bible that I know so well and you know so well and let me show you how Jesus is the Messiah from the Bible. But when he opens it, some of them hear and believe, many of them do not. Verse 25, disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made this statement. The Holy Spirit was right, saying to your fathers through the Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand You will indeed see but never perceive. Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah to say, you guys should have seen the truth even more than the Romans and you're blind to it. It's a total different contrast, right? The Roman is neutral and eventually comes to see the truth of what Paul says. The religious guys are initially neutral and they disagree with the gospel. All around us, Rome is ready. God is seeking to make disciples and people all around us are desperate to hear the truths about Christ. People are dealing with turmoil these days. We're dealing with challenges. Believers and unbelievers alike, Christians and non-Christians alike, are nowadays running to all sorts of self-medicating behaviors and secular philosophies for relief, but every one of them is eventually going to let you down. So just like the book of Acts is trying to tell the, the, its readers that the first century Roman world was ready for the gospel, in much the same way the Bible is telling us the same thing. Rome is ready. 
people are ready to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our world needs the gospel. There are people who don't follow Christ that you know and people who do follow Christ that you know and all of them need to take a step closer to Jesus. So many are ready to grow as followers of Christ or become followers of Christ for the first time. God's people need to proclaim God's word in dependence on God's spirit. I want to wrap us up, not just this morning, but this, this kind of whole series with this question. When you read a book like Acts and you finish it, the question is, what's the next step? There you are. You're all trussed up, strapped in, harnessed, secured, double-clipped, safe, all the instructions, all the help you need. You're on the edge of the platform. You know what to do. You know where to go. You got everything you need to get there. The only question is, will you take the step off the ledge? It's go time. Will I take a step in a relationship with Jesus? Church, could I leave us with an encouragement and a challenge, not not just for today, but maybe for this next month? Uh, We're finishing Acts today. We're going to spend the next few Sundays kind of looking at some of the Psalms and just soaking in God's goodness there. But I don't want us to forget Acts. The, The month of August is a great time for us to look ahead to September and say, what has God called us to be? What has God called me to be? Could I encourage you to take the month of August, starting today, and ask this question, what would it look like for you to take a step closer to Jesus? As you head off to water ski camp, for those of you that are going this week, great question to keep in mind. What do do I do with this information? Is it just Bible information? You put it aside and move on? Or what would it look like for me to take a step closer to Jesus? Maybe you don't even know how to answer that question. It starts by asking it. Questions like this might help fuel your thinking. If you're to block some time and and pray, and and write some things down, and maybe talk to some some Christian friends about this. Kind of think this process through. What kinds of questions would you ask? What things would you write down? Here's just a couple suggestions. First of all, have you responded to the gospel, the saving message of Jesus, in repentance and faith? That's where it all begins. That's where a relationship with Jesus starts. If not, that's a great thing to explore. What is the gospel? Who does Jesus say he is, and how does that relate to me? If you have responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, this is still a legitimate question. Maybe you begin to ask, could I, could I write out my own testimony, my own faith journey, so that I could share it with somebody in like five minutes or less? Christian, are you ready to do that today? That might be a good thing to really think about. How could I write down how Jesus has changed my life so that I could share it with somebody? How do I become a disciple? Think about these other aspects of God's word and his spirit and his people in his local church. Do I need to get more immersed into God's word, get to understand it better? What are the promises there? How can I read it more, understand it better? Maybe you're pretty well-versed in the Bible and and your your set of questions is different. You're like, how do I share this with somebody else? How do I read the Bible one-on-one with another person such that they can get something out of it too? Do you know how to do that? Some very simple basic skills, but we have to learn them somewhere. Maybe identifying what those skills are and growing in that kind of area. What would be your step? We're all at different places. What would be your step? How about relying on God's Spirit? 
more actively praying, giving the thoughts and the feelings and the anxieties that I have in my life to him and dependence on him to change me and to show up. Maybe I need to pray more. Or honestly, maybe there's just a step of obedience. I already know God wants me to do something. I just haven't been doing it. It could be an act of relying on God's spirit to just take the step, just jump out onto the cable, trust in the equipment, right? I'm going to do the next thing that I know God wants me to do and I've been putting it off because I'm trusting him to advance his purposes in me. Lastly, this is local church. Is it time to find a church if you don't have one? Is it time to join your church formally if you've not done so? To signal to the other members of the church, I'm in, I'm us, let's do this together. Maybe is it time to come back to church? For those maybe still watching on our live stream or viewing the recording of this service later and you haven't quite decided to come back and be present and meet with people, maybe it's time to pursue relationships with people. We're all at different places. But how can these questions help me think about what does it look like for me to take the next step? Let me encourage us to take a few moments, not only today, but over the next couple of weeks, and actually make a commitment to Christ to do that. The elders and staff here at Harvest Community Church have been doing that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here to close our service in just a moment. But I want you to know what I'm asking you to do is work that we've already been doing. We've spent significant time asking ourselves these same questions and writing actually down some specific goals and sharing them with one another. Here's how we're all pursuing Jesus more. That's our heart as a church, is to be able to say, how can we jump off onto that next cable? How can we follow him on the road that he's called us to be? Because if we do that, proclaiming God's word and the power of his spirit through our local church, God will transform our lives and the lives of thousands around us. And that's the job that he's left for us. That's the the task he's all about. And that's a beautiful thing, amen? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the privilege of getting to come together and hear your word. I pray, God, that you would make it clear to each one of us here today, whether we're just trying to figure out who you are, Jesus, for the first time, or whether we've been walking with you for decades, I pray that you'd help each of us see very clearly what it looks like for us to take another step closer to you. I pray for every student at our water ski camp this week that that you would reveal yourself and their next steps to them very clearly. I pray for all of us who won't be at ski camp to think that's not just a question for our young students to ask, that's a question for us to ask. And God, would you show us where we can step out, maybe a little scary, maybe a little bit of a cost, maybe in faith, but you have given us what we need to be given in order to follow you and being disciples who make disciples. God, would you make us a church that is so captivated by you that you would set us up to see thousands of people come to Christ and deepen their relationship with you in our city over these coming months and years. God, change us so that we could be used by you to change the world. We ask this for your, uh, in your name, by your power, and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.